Time, of course, for Reflections from Asia with Harvey Stockman. This is a personal view program. I always take care to include as many Asian views as possible, never just my own. This week is different. All of you will have heard of the first two presidents of Indonesia, Sukarno and Sohato. But this is my personal view of another single-name Indonesian, my friend Supomo. Supomo and I knew each other well in Melbourne in the late 1950s and early 1960s. We last met in 1962, about the time that Indonesia was campaigning hard to regain West New Guinea, as it then was, from the Dutch, and with the help of Robert Kennedy's mediation, turning it into West Irian. Supomo was a different kind of person to those Asian friends I had made up to that point in Ceylon, India, Pakistan and Malaya. In those countries, independence had proceeded from a belief in non-violence and had been ultimately agreed as a result of relatively peaceful struggle with the British colonial power. In Indonesia, it had been very different. Initially, in 1945, the Indonesians unilaterally declared their independence. There was no agreed handover when the Dutch sought to return to their colony after the World War II. The Indonesians found they had to fight for their independence, after all. Supomo had been in the thick of it. The necessity for violent struggle had tempered his character. He was a revolutionary in more ways than one. In the late 1950s, there were already a large number of Malaysian and Singaporean students in Melbourne. They were generally completely disinterested in politics. Supomo found their general political apathy very hard to take. They don't know what life is all about, I remember him insisting. Supomo was one of those rare human beings blessed with the quality of directness in both thought and speech. He said what he meant and meant what he said, which is why I have often thought of him in subsequent years and tried to find him. He often came to my mind as I grappled in later years with the frequently devious, always indirect circumlocutions of Javanese democratic dialogue. But then Supomo who, when I first met him, was studying at Melbourne University, had graduated very early in the demanding high school of actual experience. He had been one of a very small band of Indonesian students who had briefly kidnapped the Indonesian leaders Sukarno and Mohamed Hatta during the dying days of the Japanese occupation and forced them to make... August the 17th, 1945, a Declaration of Independence Day, at a moment when Sukarno was inclined to temporise. But when the fighting ceased and Sukarno became the first president of the Republic in 1949, he didn't temporise in one small, but for him, very important matter. Anxious to stay in power as long as he could, he sent all those demanding forthright students of 1945 to study overseas as far away as possible from Jakarta. In the late 1950s, I should add, Melbourne seemed a long way from Asia. 
The incident which comes to my mind most frequently whenever I think of Supomo took place in 1958 or 1959. It was a small matter, but it forever secured for him a permanent niche in my consciousness. We went one evening to the upper-class suburb of Turak to attend a meeting of an Australian-Asian Friendship Association or some such pretentiously named outfit. It seemed to be a dull, though well-meaning occasion as far as I was concerned, but Supomo was obviously very bored. So we did not stay for long, and once outside I immediately asked him what he thought of the proceedings. When I first came to Melbourne a few years ago, Supomo intoned, waving his hand towards the Turak residence, these people... He said it with an edge in his voice. These people had a fad of owning poodles. Now they don't pat poodles, they pat Asians instead. At that unforgettable moment, Supomo gave me an invaluable tool for understanding global politics and international relations. Poodle patting is a pervasive and undesirable phenomenon which inhibits nations from properly understanding and coexisting with one another. It is surprising how many leading lights indulge in it. Supomo was making a comment on the ostentatious and patronising attitudes which at that time, and maybe even until today, lay just beneath the surface of Asian-Australian relations. Perhaps it was in part guilt. Undoubtedly, there was a genuine desire for some to go along and get along. Of course they mean well, Supomo argued with me. But that is not the point. For him, those who tried oh so hard to be nice were, in a very real way, guilty of extending the colonial period. Pom, as we all called him, didn't want to be patronised. He even preferred it if people were honestly indifferent. But what he really wanted was to be treated as an equal. Generally speaking, Australians were extremely frank with one another. Supomo wanted them to be as frank with him on exactly the same basis. No poodle patting. It did not take long for me to begin to realise that the poodle patting concept had a wider relevance than just Australian-Asian relations. It certainly applied to American-Asian relations too. This became abundantly clear to me a few years after Supomo made his classic remark as Mao Zedong's great proletarian cultural revolution suddenly swept across the face of China. I was in South and Southeast Asia at the time, reading what was being written by China watchers in Hong Kong and elsewhere about the great upheaval. It was already clear, and of course became clearer with the passage of time, that immense chaos and suffering were once again being imposed upon the Chinese people by Chinese rulers. What shocked me then, and still angers me today, were the Western commentators and analysts who dug deep into their capacity for rationalisation and pronounced the GPCR and other made-in-China upheavals to be a wonderful event, a revolutionary blessing, or a great start for a truly new China. It was poodle-patting of the highest order. The poodle patters did not seek out the facts of the situation, such as they were at the time, and then let the analytical chips fall where they may. 
Instead, they try to justify an event in the best possible light, in the process frequently attacking those who did deal in hard facts for being anti-China. Had an event comparable to the Cultural Revolution taken place in the United States or in Europe, these same people would probably not have hesitated to denounce and expose it. But way back in the 1960s, the Cultural Revolution was in mysterious, wonderful or revolutionary China, the China which the West had mistreated and abused for so many years, so it simply had to be justified. Of course, you can argue that it didn't really matter what China's poodle patters said at that time. The China apologists were just grist to the Beijing propaganda machine, that's all. Maybe, but just possibly, possibly fewer Chinese would have died and China would have come to its political senses sooner had the friends of China been true to their intellectual heritage and told it like it was. Any mention of boodle-patting and China inevitably leads to the broader question of the romanticism with which China is still viewed in the wider world and which plays an unending role in the relations which most major nations develop with the Middle Kingdom. Sufficient to note that poodle-patting can often be a two-way street. Supomo didn't think that way, but some poodles do like to be patted. However, it was interesting, and probably an indication of real Chinese thinking, that the man who eventually opened up diplomatic relations with China, Richard Nixon, had emphatically not been a poodle patter, but had been a fierce critic of China in his earlier years. Which brings me to another reason why I am remembering Supomo and the folly of poodle patting at this particular time. In a nutshell, poodle patting still lies at the heart of some economic and political thinking about Asia. One way in which the West has been exceedingly unhelpful to Southeast and East Asia has been in the never-ending promulgation by Western academics, journalists, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund and assorted intellectuals and politicians of the dubious thesis about Asia's economic miracle. The far more relevant point is that Asian nations have been valiantly, though sometimes belatedly, combating tremendous population pressures, deeply ingrained poverty, woefully weak infrastructure, high levels of illiteracy and profound social and ethnic divisions with a modest degree of success and many failures. There has been nothing miraculous about that, especially as countries like China, Indonesia and the Philippines, to name only three, earlier wasted decades on ruinous political diversions during which they went backwards, not forwards. East and Southeast Asia are still only now beginning to catch up with their problems. They still have a long way to go. Dubbing the limited achievements so far as a miracle was either disdainful, patronising or naive at best, carrying distinct overtones of what my friend Supomo rejected, quite rightly, as poodle-patting. At worst, it was racial poodle-patting, carrying the racist assumption that it was miraculous that Asians were reacting to the challenge of modernity like the white folks did. After all, no one ever called it the British miracle when the Industrial Revolution was invented, no one termed it the American economic miracle when the United States overtook Britain and went on growing from then until the present day.
The biting irony has been that the word miracle was particularly inappropriate for Asia since it injected into an already strongly religious environment an element of the supernatural in relation to what should be seen instead as the complex mechanics of economic progress. If the West was wrong to accept and propagate the Asian miracle idea, Asians have been equally at fault in adopting the concept as a bolster to their post-colonial pride. This is where poodle-patting becomes a two-way street. On the one hand, in relation to the Asian economic miracle concept, I criticise those who were flatterers. It is equally relevant to find fault with those who succumbed to the flattery and then made the additional error of believing their own propaganda. Sure enough, as successive crises have afflicted South, East and East Asia, it has been all too easy for political leaders to assume that it is in their stars rather than themselves that they have become underlings. The religious miracle concept has also bred irresponsibility. Sufficient to remember that way back in 1959, Supomo reminded me of the essence of modernity and equality. Wherever you are, Pom, I'm sure you're still striving for true equality and keeping your critical faculties at the service of mankind. Wherever you are, I miss you, but thanks for the memories. <laughs>